How do you know that the life you have lived is a well-lived life? How do you know that at the end of your life, it was a good life, a life that has been worth living? What marks a life well-lived? Is it for an athlete of some of you to eventually have a statue in front of a sports arena like Kobe will get in front of the Staples Center in L.A.? Will it be for some of you artists that wonderful honor of getting a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in L.A.? Will a life worth living be when you win a Nobel Prize in science or in physics or perhaps becoming a national artist here in the Philippines and recognized as such? What about getting your name etched into a record book? Everyone wants to get into the Guinness Book of World Record, being the one person in the world to have done something. Would that be a life well lived? And yet, if you ever read Guinness Book of World Records, there are some pretty odd records, like the most Big Macs consumed in a lifetime. And, and that honor goes, to, I don't know if it's an honor, but that goes to Donald Gorski, who ate his 26,000th McDonald's Big Mac after 40 years of eating Big Macs on a daily basis. If you want to aim high, maybe you can beat out Donald Gorski and eat 60,000 Big Macs, I don't know. But will that make your life worth living? There are many definitions that the world gives as to what is a life worth living, but the most important one is the one who will judge us at the end. How does God see a life that is worth living? He doesn't leave it to secret for us to figure out. He's pretty explicit, and he does so in a parable. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. We're going to be taking a look at verses 14 to 30. Here in our church, we are continuing in our sermon series entitled Masterclass, Learning Important Life Lessons from the Parables of Jesus. And here in this very familiar parable in Matthew, chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, the Lord defines for us what is a well-lived life. What is a life that is well-lived? Let's take a look. Look at verses 14 to 15. For the kingdom of God is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Here there's a master who's going on a journey to a far-off place, and he allocates his resources, his own money, to three of his servants. And they are to be responsible for managing his money. To one, given five talents. To another, two. And to the third, one talent. Now, the talent originally was a measure of weight. But it soon changed to refer to a coin worth about 6,000 denarii, which I know makes no real impact in your life, other than that talent was worth about 16.5 years worth of a salary of a working man and so i'll do the calculation for you that's about 3.5 million pesos today in today's daily wage computation so one talent in your mind think 3.5 million pesos and so the amount given to each of these three servants was not any small amount it was a large amount now for the purpose of understanding this story let's refer to a talent as an ability as resources that is given by the master now, you may ask the question, why, why wasn't this money divided equally? Note that phrase in verse 15, according to his own ability were each of these talents distributed. Each servant was given what the master knew was the ability of that servant to take care of that money. Plus, it's up to the master's discretion. It's his money anyways. 
if it's not clear enough for you in the story, the master is the Lord himself who distributes the talents. We are the servants represented in the story, and we are given abilities and resources by which we are to steward and to take care of until he comes back. So I want you to note something very important, young and old. You and I in this life are only responsible for the ability and the resources that God has given you. That's why to whom much is given, much is expected. You and I are not responsible for that which we have not been given graciously by God. That means if you're a teacher, God's not going to judge your life at the end of it and say, well, how come you never became CEO of a company? If you are not given a, a physically fit body like mine, then God will never ask you at the end of this life, why did you never make it to be a sports star to give glory to me? You and I are only responsible for the talents and the abilities and the resources that God has graciously given us. And this truth should be something that you ingrain in your mind. You and I are responsible for what has been given to us. That should cut out a lot of competition, a lot of comparison. There is no need to compare. There is no need to compete. You see, my friends... You should know that none of you all have the same intellectual ability. None of you all have the same physical ability. None of you have the same emotional capacity. And yet you and I are only responsible for that which God has given us. Now look what happens when the master goes away. Look at verses 16 to 18. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. Verse 18. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. The servant that was given five talents made five more. He doubled his money. The servant that was given two talents made two more. And the one that was given one didn't make any money. He instead hid the money. I want to point out a few things of importance here. First... These three servants are not earning for themselves. They are earning for the master. And so when we live this life, it's not so that we can accumulate more for ourselves. The stewardship of God's money has been given to us to take care, to grow, so that we can give it back to God. Now you may think, well, that's not very fair. But it is fair. Because young people, young and old, everything on this earth belongs to God. We are simply caretakers of the things which God has given us. And it should speak to the motive of why you and I live this life. If you and I live our lives for ourselves so that we can earn and gain more things, you're going to find that this life is really shallow and hollow at the end of it. Because truth be told, you and I actually don't really earn monies for ourselves. You don't believe me? Ask someone who works for a company. They can work as hard as they want. Do they get to see that money? No. You work hard so that you can earn money for another company. Then you say, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to start my own business. But in reality, do you still get to keep it all? No. You work hard for your own businesses, and if you're paying the right taxes, the harder you work, the more the government makes. You're really funding the government. If you have children, you work hard so that you can work for the betterment of your family and your children. And at the end of the day, whatever leftover you have, you still can't keep it with you. It all stays here on earth. Foolish the thought for the one who lives this life to accumulate thinking they can keep it all. It's really the Lord's anyway, so 
you should be motivated and I should be motivated. If we can't keep anything, then the things we do should be for God. Well, now the master comes back. Look with me at verse 19 to 21. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Verse 20, so he who had received five talents came and brought five others' talents, saying, Lord, you delivered me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. When the master comes back, he calls everyone to account. The three servants came, and the first one reported, Master, you gave me five. I earned five more. I doubled your money. I want you to notice the response of the master. He doesn't say, oh, goody, thank you for doubling my money. You are such a good man. There is no disclaimer. There is no commendation for what the man earns back. He simply says, well done. He commends him for being good and faithful, an acknowledgement of a life well lived. Look what he gets. You now have the privilege of more responsibilities. You get to enter into joy of the Lord. You get to enter into the, the, the good things of all that the Master has prepared. You see, number one, if you're taking notes, number one, the reward of a life well lived comes after this life is over. That may sound very depressing for some of you as you head on to a new phase of your life, whether in graduation or otherwise. But the truth is in the scriptures, the reward of a life well lived does not come in this life. God may extend some blessings, but the full reward of a life well lived comes after this life is over. And my friends, this is a very difficult concept to understand for a generation that is what we call an instant generation. We want our gratifications now. We have a hard time understanding this concept because we don't want to put in the hard work. We're okay to settle with little rewards of happiness. But we never see the bigger picture that a life of perseverance and faithfulness garners for us a greater prize. And that's why so few doctors are actually doctors today. Lots of people want to be doctors. It's a noble profession, but when I tell you, you've got to study for another 18 years after university to even be a surgeon. A lot of people think otherwise. You see, to get the privilege of being called the medical doctor, you have to give up a lot of temporary privileges. And so if you want to be a doctor, you shouldn't enjoy too much all the playtime on the weekends. If you enjoy those things, then don't become a doctor. You see, the reality is if you don't put in the work to get the reward at the end, then don't expect that you're going to get rewards. But it's just a funny generation, an entitlement generation, where we believe that we put in some effort and we'll get the same as everyone else. When has that ever been fair? You know, even extends into what we think about heaven. Listen carefully. People have the wrong notion that when we get to heaven, everyone gets the same things. Did you know that? Did you know that when you get to heaven, you and I will not have the same reward? We all get into heaven by the grace of God, by placing our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. That's true. But the Bible is very clear. When you and I get to heaven... The doctrine of eternal rewards kicks in, and we do not receive the same things. Now, some of you have asked me, Pastor, how is that fair? 
Won't it be that if everyone gets different rewards, that we will be jealous? And then we'll sin and we'll get thrown out of heaven. I said, don't you worry. Because in heaven, in our resurrected bodies, we will not have a sin nature. And so, surprisingly, if someone gets more than you in their heavenly, eternal rewards, you will praise God that they got more than you. And they're always shocked. Really? On earth today, I get mad when someone gets more than me. It must truly be heaven if I get up there and I'm happy for people who get more than me. But that's what the Bible tells us. And we don't understand it well today because, quite frankly, our, our parents don't teach this principle to us well. You know, it's funny, you just watch the pendulum swing of how parenting works. I'm a younger parent, but a parenting uh, style of a generation before mine was very strict, very disciplined. And so the parents of my generation today, we want to be kind and gracious. Yes, we talk about rewards and, and, and punishments, but in our graciousness of wanting to be our child's best friend, we actually never act on our threats. You know how it is. I have three children. And sometimes we tell them, okay, here's how the reward punishment system works. If you're obedient and you're good in this set period of time, and then at the end of it, daddy and mommy will give you candy or buy you a toy. And that's how it works. And, and if you're not obedient, you're disobedient, you don't get it. And let's say, and it happens a lot of cases, two of them are very obedient. I won't name the one. Two of them are very obedient. They are deserving of the prize we told we'll give them, a piece of candy or what else. They're easily bought. And we give it to them. And we say, oh, you've been very obedient. Here is the prize. And then we look at the one who doesn't get anything, always with a sad face. And your heart goes out to them, kawawa, so sorrowful. What would you do in this case? Parents of a previous generation would say, well, you deserve it. Learn your lesson. Parents of our generation generally are, well, let's give it to him also. He will learn the next time. Well, the reality is you are teaching them to live in a make-believe world. They don't understand the benefits of rewards and the suffering of consequences, and I believe this is a disservice. Because you're not teaching them what the Bible tells us. The very clear example of the rewards of a life well lived comes after this life. And it doesn't change. What doesn't change? The criteria. What's the criteria? Look with me at verses 22 to 23. He also, had, he, he also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Here, the second servant comes. He gives a similar report as the one given five talents. And I want you to know something very important. That the commendation from the master, from the Lord, is exactly the same as the one given to the one who came back with five more talents. Because as I mentioned earlier, you are only responsible for that which you have been given. And at the end of the day, the criteria for a life well lived from the perspective of God who judges us is one of faithfulness. And that's number two. Number two, if you're taking notes, the criteria for a life well lived is faithfulness. The criteria for a life well lived is faithfulness. 
It's not in your position. It's not in your monetary wealth. It's not in your status. It's not even in your accomplishment that is the measure of a life well lived. It is your faithfulness in the scriptures and in your walk with God that is the criteria of how the Lord judges us for a life that is well lived. Are you faithful in in living your life of character, your life of truth, your life of integrity? Listen carefully. Do you prefer to lose fairly or to win through corruption and cheating? That is a lifelong question, not only to students, but to the business professionals. Do you prefer to lose fairly or to win through cheating and corruption? Because if the criteria of a well-lived life is faithful to a Christ-like character, then the choice should be obvious in what we should choose. The mantra of the world is winning at all costs. The ends justify the means. No, it doesn't. Winning at all costs does not mean you sacrifice your faithful living according to the Scriptures. When each of you graduates or moving up people, I don't know what you call them, moving up people receive your award, will you be able to stand proud and say, I did it myself? Or would you have to shyly say, well, the reality is, I got some unfair help from others. A few months ago, one of my children came up to us and, and told us something. He said, Daddy, Mommy, we took a test today, and uh, one of my classmates had a cheat sheet. Somehow, the, had, somehow had come across the answers to the test. And we said, okay, well, thank you for telling us. Um, uh, how do you feel about it? My child said, no, I feel really bad about it. I want to get a really good grade, but they cheated, and they're going to get a better grade than me. And uh, I said, it's okay. You're doing the right thing. Well, uh, the test scores came back, and the one who cheated, if you saw, had a cheat sheet. Got a 98. And uh, she came back, and my daughter came back, and she got a 96. And I said, honey, you should be very proud. And I said, daddy and mommy would have loved you even if you failed this test. Because I would rather have a child who fails something and does it right with integrity than one who gets a hundred and does it without integrity. We all nod our heads and say, well, yeah, of course, that's the way it should be. But we don't teach our kids like that. In how we reward them, we say to them, do and achieve great things at all cost. I told my daughter, I said, it's okay. What they did is between them and God. At least you can be proud that this is what you got with your own study. I'm not saying my children are perfect, but I'm more pointing to all of us who, who have this position called parents or mentors and even as students even as business professionals you may fool the world because you don't think they see but you know there is one who's going to judge us and the one who judges us is omniscient i love the characters of god the characters of god remind us about who he is and the bible tells us he is omniscient he sees everything so don't try to fool the one judge that sees everything whose judgment matters at the end of this life. And this truth should revolutionize, I believe, how we live our lives. 
and that which we aim for. It doesn't mean we don't strive for excellence. It doesn't mean we don't pursue great things for the glory of God. In fact, one of our core values at this church is the pursuit of excellence. But it just means that whatever you do, whatever you are, be sure that at the end of this life, your life can be assessed as one who has been faithful to the things of God. I know there are a lot of teachers here, stay-at-home moms, men who are not bosses but go to work every day on time. They're, they're just simply faithful to what God has called them to. Let me tell you what. Because the criteria for a well-lived life is faithfulness. Every one of us can earn the same spiritual reward as the great Billy Graham. We can earn, you and I can earn the same spiritual rewards. And I believe there will be many unknown people on earth today who in heaven are greatly glorified with spiritual rewards. Why? For the simple criteria that they live the life of faithfulness. Faithful to what God has entrusted you with, your abilities, your resources to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. One of my favorite stories is of two young engineers. They applied for the same position at a computer company. These two applicants for the engineering position had the same qualifications. In order to determine which individual to hire, the applicants were asked to take a test by the departmental manager. Upon completion of the test, both men missed only one of the questions. And so the hiring manager went to the first applicant and said, thank you for your interest in this job, but we've decided to give your job to the other applicant. The rejected applicant said to the hiring manager, why would you do that? We both got nine questions correct. We only missed one. And in fact, we only missed the same question. The department hiring manager said, well, we base our decisions not on the correct answers, but on the question you missed. The rejected applicant said, well, how can one incorrect answer be better than the other? Again, we, we missed the exact same question number five. The hiring manager said, simple. Your fellow applicant put down on question number five the answer. I don't know the answer. You put down on question number five the answer. Neither do I. Some of you will get it. Faithfulness will show itself. It may not show itself in this lifetime, but the Bible is very clear. God who sees all assesses our life, and He assesses it on the basis, not on your success, but on your faithfulness. I was at a memorial park this week, and to my surprise, I, I saw something at a grave site that I'd never seen before. There was a man, he was buried at a grave site, and I counted, he had 20 solar-powered spotlights that would illuminate his grave at night. And I thought, well, it's just a famous man. I, I walked over, and he was just, a, I didn't know him, and, and I couldn't believe it. I posted it on my social media page, 20 spotlights on his grave site. Now, I can't judge this man's intention or if this is what his family did for him. But I was joking with my wife when I came home. Hey, you know what? I've got a great idea. When I die and you bury me, I want dancing fountains in front of my gravesite so people will come like the Bellagio. That would be cool with music. But on seriousness aside, taking serious uh, this issue, when we die, we, we don't need the spotlights. We don't need the dancing fountains. We don't need to force people to come. 
You see, the, the one thing we want written about each of us, and I hope that's what you want, are the words, he or she was faithful to Christ until the end. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I fought the good fight, I've, I finished the race, I've kept the faith, I was faithful until the end. Can it be said of you, he or she was faithful to Christ until the end, because that is what's going to mark how God judges us, his criteria. Well, what about a life poorly lived? Very quickly, verse 24 to 25. Then he would receive the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you would be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Third servant comes. He was given one talent, still a large sum of money. He had hid it under the ground, and he says something quite shocking to the master. He says to the master, you are unfair, master. Can you imagine not saying that to your boss? You are unfair. You are forcing us to earn money for you. Try that to your boss the next time you see him on Monday. You'd be fired. You didn't do anything of worth. We are your servants. He's forgotten a few things. He is a servant. That's his job. But of course, he couldn't be more wrong as, as the master doesn't need the money. The master was simply testing the faithfulness of the servant in order to give more reward to the servant. You know, we get mad at God all the time. We get mad at God for the wrong reasons. God, you didn't give me this, that. You didn't give me what other people have. And we forget something. We forget this attitude. That God is simply testing our faithfulness in this life so that he can give us more. Here's something you won't ever, say, you won't ever hear from other pastors, I think. I'm here to tell you that God doesn't need your money. And now drops the offering for this week. God doesn't need your money. I've said this many a times. God doesn't need you to volunteer for Him to do His bidding. He is the sovereign God. We say He's omnipotent. If He's omnipotent, all-powerful, He doesn't need you. I'm sorry to say. He doesn't need your money. There's an old hymn that goes, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He, he doesn't need your money. Listen, he gives you and I the privilege of giving to him. He gives you and I the privilege of serving him. For what? For what purpose? So that he can give us more rewards. Do you ever think about it that way? He gives us the privilege to serve him, to test our faithfulness so that he can give us more. The third servant just took the money, lazy, didn't do anything with it. Look at the response of the master, verse 26 to 27. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. The Lord says, You lazy, wicked servant, in contrast to the good and faithful of the other two. And the master uses the servant's own word. He says, Okay, you thought I'm a hard man? If you think that I'm a hard man and will call you to account, you are very foolish not to have done anything. You are lazy, I know that, but you could have done the lazy way of man's work. You could have just put the money in a bank, don't do anything, and at least you will earn some interest. You couldn't even do that. Your laziness showed forth your unfaithfulness. You know, a lot of Christians, you've heard the sermon before, 
Yeah, yeah, Pastor, Pastor, I, I need to be faithful. And so you're going to walk out these doors this morning. Yeah, 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 I know to be faithful, but I'll try. I'll, I'll do it. As Yoda say, do or do not. There is no try. A bit of truth in that. Try. Try is our cop-out statement that we're just not going to do it. Isn't that true? That's true. Admit it. We will try. I'll try to be better. Either do it or you don't. You're either faithful or you're not. You see, number three, the criticism of a life poorly lived. The criticism of a life poorly lived is unfaithfulness. The criticism of a life poorly lived is one's unfaithfulness. You either live a life of faithfulness or you live a life of unfaithfulness. And even if you're trying with really no intentions to do, then it's unfaithful. That means if you're wealthy and powerful and have everything that this world is striving for you to have, but you are unfaithful to the commands of God, then God assesses your life as a life poorly lived. Your life doesn't amount to much. It doesn't matter how much money you give to charity. It doesn't matter how many schools you built. It doesn't matter how many awards you have. It doesn't matter how many friends you have. It doesn't matter how much you're loved. If you have been unfaithful to what God gives you, then you have not lived a good life. A man who gives a lot of money to charity but is unfaithful to his wife and steals and cheats lives a life that is poorer than one who doesn't give much to charity but is faithful to his wife and lives a life of integrity. What type of life will you live? Look quickly at verse 28 to 30. So take the talent from him, the master says, and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. For from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The consequences for a servant is that what he is given to steward will be taken away from him if he lives a poor life. Here he is called worthless in verse 30, thrown out, unable to serve the master more. You see, number four, write this down. The consequences of a life of unfaithfulness is severe. Don't forget that. The life, the consequences of a life of unfaithfulness is severe. If you don't place your trust in Jesus Christ, the consequences is eternal damnation in hell. The Bible is so clear about that. For those Christians who do not live their lives for Christ, the consequences is loss of eternal rewards. Both are severe consequences for living a life of unfaithfulness. As I preached a few weeks ago, there are no second chances in hell. You don't get to hell and you go, oh, you know what, I, I made a mistake, it's really hot down here. I want to go to heaven. Lord, I'm sure you'll find a way because you love me so much. No. A biblical truth is there is no second chance in hell. Let me tell you what. There is also no second chance to earn rewards when you get to heaven. You know, some of you go to time zone. I go to time zone every now and then. I know it's shameful for a 42-year-old to still go to time zone. But um, I need to de-stress every now and then. 
you know, it's such a silly thing, but uh, you play those silly games. They aren't really silly, but they're pretty addictive. And you earn tickets, and with those tickets, you go to a little booth, and you, you get that stuffed animal. And, and uh, if you're smart enough, you realize you can buy the stuffed animal at 168 for much cheaper than what you actually spend playing the games to get the tickets to buy the stuffed animal. But, but you know how it is when you think you got a lot of tickets and you go up there and you want, to, you want the stuffed animal that, that you like and you're two tickets short. That's always frustrating. You're just a few short. What's the remedy to that? You go and play more games. You go back, you know, spend another 500 pesos to get those two tickets so you can go with that feeling of accomplishment. I got a stuffed toy. And some of us have this notion that that's how heaven's like. And I don't know what God's catalog of spiritual rewards are, and he doesn't tell us explicitly in the scriptures. But we get to heaven, I think a lot of us will be regretting that we're two tickets short of the next higher level of reward. The Bible is very clear. There is no second chance at that. The consequences of a life of unfaithfulness is severe. You see, my friends, at the end of the day, there's only one award that matters in this life. You'll get a lot of awards throughout your life, but there's only one award in this life that is worth garnering. And I don't know what it's called, but I call it the Faithfulness Award. And truth be told, sadly, very few people will get it, perhaps, because we're always aiming for temporary rewards. But that is the award that all of us can achieve. Pastor Stephen Cole notes this in an article in America. We have several yardsticks by which we measure a life. One is usefulness. We're pragmatists at heart. We feel that if a person does something useful for society, whether it is a profession or a trade, he or she has lived a good life. Another yardstick we use in America is we use busyness or sheer activity. Our lifestyle reflects our value here. We're all extremely busy people. Our weekly calendars are full to the brim. We have the notion that if you're busy, then you have lived a good life. If you just sit around, you're, you're wasting your life. Another yardstick we gauge our life by is adventure and excitement. And if we can't get the adventure and the excitement we want firsthand, we pick it up vicariously on television or the movies or at sporting events. Our, our heroes lead exciting lives, and we want to be like our heroes, either through romance or life or death risk-taking. We, we read magazines like People magazines that tell us about the rich and the famous, and we secretly, and we all we know do that, we all do this, we secretly wish that our lives could be like theirs. Everyone sadly wants to be a Kardashian. We generally think that a, the person who, who, who dies rich and, and is famous is somehow has achieved all that life has to offer. And, and as, he, as he notes, behind all of these yardsticks is a desire for personal happiness. Even if a person dies poor and unknown, if he or she was happy and content, well, that's what matters. Well, no, it doesn't. That is the wrong yardstick to measure your life by. But that's what the world wants us to buy into. Live like this man. Live like this woman. Be like this. Have this lifestyle. Have a yacht. One day you will finally sail on that yacht and say, I've made it in life. And that's why there are a lot of people sitting at the Manila Yacht Club, that boat never leaves the harbor, but they just sit on that boat. I have achieved something. I've got a boat. I've seen it. They just sit out there. That boat never moves. You know it's true. And yet the Bible is so clear. It's not about those things. It's about faithfulness. 
How will you measure your life? And that's why I love speaking to graduates. It's that time when we begin to think, what's the next step in life? But that is something all of us need to think about, whether graduating or not. At the end of this life, when we walk across the stage of life and the Lord is going to reward us, how have we measured our life against the world's desires and yardstick or against God's? On his deathbed, the great hero of the faith, Matthew Henry, who, whose commentary is still used after 300 years when he first wrote it, he said to his friend, we all note the words of a dying man. This is mine. The dying words of Matthew Henry. A life spent in the service of God and communion with Him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in this world. And that's so true. A life spent in the service of God and in communion with Him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in this earth. R.A. Torrey writes, There is more joy in Jesus in 24 hours than there is in the world in 365 days. I know I have tried them both. My challenge to you is when your life is assessed, I hope it will be a life well lived. You may never win that Oscar. You may never win that Emmy. You may never be in Fortune 100's richest men in the world. You may not be the valedictorian. You may not be the salutatorian. You may not have a book written about you. You may not, and most of us probably won't have a statue in front of the Staples Center. But those things really don't matter. It's not to make us feel good. It's because the Bible is so clear. The Lord assesses us on our life based on how we were faithful to Him. May all of us have been found faithful to Him until the very end. Let's pray. Father, for Your Word, we thank You. A sharp reminder and a rebuke even to me. May I be found faithful in Your sight until I see You. Young as they are, may these graduates also find faithfulness in you and I pray that for our church every single person here young and old this is not a graduation sermon but this is a reminder of the graduation we will have when we leave this earth and the Lord looks at our hearts and looks at the life we have lived and may it be said of all of us that great award of faithfulness well done good and faithful servant Enter now into the joy of your Lord. Bless these people here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.